if you if you missed last week, let me give you a quick a recap. We're in our in a series called Emotionally Healthy Disciples, and we're looking at how uh, our emotional health affects the totality of who we are as people, and particularly as uh, followers of Jesus. And we said that uh, we can't be more spiritually mature than we are emotionally mature. Those things are they're connected, they're tethered um, together. We can't rush ahead in one area and lag behind. And if you've been if you missed it last week, I want to mention it again. I'll probably mention it every week just because they record these, um, you know, for my mom. Uh, that uh, Pete Scazzaro uh, wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. A lot of what we're doing and working through is stuff that's come from his book. So if you don't already have a copy, uh, you, will, you will be massively helped by getting his book and, and reading it. And you'll recognize a lot of what we're doing um, through that book. So that's Pete Scazzaro's book on emotionally healthy spirituality. But a recap, if you missed last week, last week we spoke about the importance of looking beneath the surface. And we've got this cool, I didn't even reference this image that, uh, I think it's Gemma who did this thing for us. I, like, I just put the slide up last week and then off we went, like into the scriptures and stuff. And like, I, I mean, I'm not the most, um, you know, an, uh, attentive person. What's the word I'm trying to find, love? Um, yeah, I can't even find the word. But like the iceberg, it, I missed the iceberg initially, but like, you know what, you know the whole understanding of an iceberg that most of it is beneath the surface. I mean, this hopefully isn't news to most of us, but like the majority of icebergs are beneath the surface. And that's, that's a picture of us as people, like the most of us is like beneath the surface where people can't see and we, we sometimes can't see and sometimes don't go. We don't go there, we stay up there. And week one was us saying, hey, let's, let's look beneath the surface. There's so much that our emotions are telling us about what's, what's deep down there. Um, and, I, and I hope some of you, I, hope so, I know some of you have, because I've had some feedback from some people, but I hope others have started working through those workbooks that we gave out last week. If you weren't sure and you'd, you'd be keen on a workbook, we've got a workbook that goes every day to help you um, ask questions at the end of the day to assess what emotions did I feel today, what were the loudest ones, what are they telling me, uh, where, where did they come from, and what are they telling me about what God is wanting to do in my life? And um, I, I hope if, if you've been doing that, I hope it's been helpful. If you haven't, um, I hope in week two you, you kickstart that and give a few days at least of the week to try to end your days like, like that. Um, so that was week one, was looking beneath the surface. Week two, what we're talking about this morning is the importance of breaking free from the past. Breaking free from the past. Um, Claire and I often use when we're counseling people this phrase that your past um, doesn't define you, but it does explain you. Your past doesn't define you, but it does explain you. Um, that's mostly true. It's mostly true. Uh, as we've journeyed with a lot of people, I think your past, your past has a power to define you. Your past has a power to define you. It doesn't have to. So you're not necessarily a victim of your past, but unless you deal with things and unless you break free from your past, certain elements of your past, it does have a significant shaping power to define you. But for every one of us, your past will explain you, and it doesn't have to define you. Um, we, have, we have been amazed. One of, the, one of the blessings and privileges Claire and I have had uh, together in our marriage and our ministry is doing premarital counseling with a lot of people. 
I'm looking around the room and I'm thinking, we've done it with I don't know how many of the people I'm staring at here, uh, and you've had the chance to come and sit on our couch, and we've asked you a million questions, and you've worked through stuff, and part of what we do when we do premarital counseling is that you tell us about your family of origin. What's your family like? What was your parents' marriage like? What was it like growing up in your home? Because um, it, it's, it's hopefully obvious to all of us that you are probably the most significantly shaped by your family of origin. It's probably the most powerful influence in your growing up is the family that, that you grew up in. How your parents were to you or weren't, whether they were there or not, what they did and didn't do, what they said and didn't say, um, how they treated you or didn't treat you, we could keep going. Your parents have shaped you in fundamental ways, some of which you will be aware of and many you'll be oblivious to. Um, but as we've sat with couple after couple, we've reminded them and said, hey, look, you know, sometimes we get them to talk about that. What were some of the great things about your parents and some of, some of the things that you, you didn't love in their marriage or you didn't like about them or you don't like about them? To give them eyes wide open to say, look, it's very likely that the things that you've seen, even the things that you don't like, you will repeat in your own life and in your own marriage just because uh, that's how it works. You've seen it. And even though you may, you either repeat them or you try and overcorrect so much. It's like, I'm never going to be like my parents. I said this uh, about one of my parents. I won't mention which one it was. So I'm never going to be like that because there were some bumpy and tricky things growing up. Like, and I see now, eyes wide open more and more. I am not that far away. Apples don't fall far from trees. Fight it as much as you want. But the power, the shaping power and the influence of your upbringing and your family of origin has made each one of us in this room partly who you are. Now, I want to say that it doesn't have to define you forever. Because I know some of you and I know some of your stories and I know that some of you there's more baggage than others. For some of you, you've had the blessing of wonderful families and we're going to talk about it in a second. But for some of you, it's been a bumpy ride and it remains so. And there's lots of grace from God in, in the midst of all of that. So as we look at breaking free from our past, there's three things I want us to look at. Three areas that I think are helpful. The first is that you have to acknowledge that there's both blessing and sin that's come from your family. This is how you break free from your past. You acknowledge that there's both blessing and sin from your family. Um, you, you see this even in the scriptures, and we are, don't worry, we're going to get to the Bible soon. Uh, you see this in the scriptures, um, how, how blessing, covenantal blessing flows down in families from generation to generation to generation. And good things. I mean, I'm sure we're all going to talk about some of the stuff that goes sideways in our families in a second. But we, I think we'd all be able to acknowledge that there's some good stuff that you've received from your parents. It may, it may just be your good looks. Um, no, I'm sure it's more than that, uh, hopefully. Uh, but if you dig and you think, um, th there's good stuff um, that you've received from, from your parents or from your family of origin, uh, blessings um, that you can thank God for. Thank you, God, for putting me in that family and for those things coming. It, they may have come disguised. They may have come wrapped up in hardship, disguised as something different, but they actually, if you sit and reflect on it, has been a blessing uh, in your life. 
And so God is like that. You see it again and again in the scriptures where God is committed to multi-generational blessing, particularly through making covenants with his people. So you receive blessing. Um, sometimes it's not because of you. It's because God has been very kind to your grandparents, and you just live in the kindness of that. But So there can be lots of good, but there's also lots of sinful influence. If you have a Bible, sorry, I should have told you to do this earlier. Open to Genesis 12. We're going to be looking at a couple of different passages. I want to, I want to show you an example of how the sinful effect of multi-generational um, waywardness uh, works itself out in the Scriptures. And you can, you can uh, I'm just going to show you an example here, uh, because I think, it's, <clears throat> I think it's here for us uh, to, to learn from, and you can just apply it to your, own, to your own family. We're looking at Abraham, or Abram at the moment. Uh, Genesis 12, verse 10 to 16 Abram is on his way. Well, let me just read from verse 10. It, it explains it better than I'm going to. There was a famine in the land. So Abram, before his name is changed to Abram's thought. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Husbands, just elbow your wife quickly. There's a free um, gap there for you. Um, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister. So it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. What do you see here in Abram's life? Lying. Straight up lying. The guy's a coward, and he just lies. And he's like, oh, my wife is like next level, good looking. They're going to want to scale her. Like, if she's the final mom, my wife, things are going to go pear-shaped. Maybe they're going to knock me off so they get to her. So let, hey, please tell them you're, you're my sister. And, I mean, that goes really well because they end up taking her because they think, they think oh, it's not his wife, it's his sister. And off you go to the palace, go and hang out with Pharaoh. I mean, you can keep reading the rest of the story in your own time, but basically it comes to light that it's not his sister. It's actually his wife, and she gets returned. You would think that a guy like that who does that would learn from his mistakes. They would have a sit down and say, listen, let's not do that again. I'm your wife. I'm not your sister, Jana. Let's, uh, let's hang out together here. This marriage is going to struggle here. You're going to be sleeping on the couch forever. If you do that again to me, it wasn't a pleasant experience. You would think. Fast forward to Genesis 20, and we find our friend, we, I'm not going to read it again. You can go and read it in your own time. In Genesis 20, Abraham finds himself in a different area with King Abimelech, who you're going to see a couple of times. King Abimelech, he does what? He does exactly the same thing. He's worried about how good looking his wife is, and he lies again. He says, she's my sister. She gets carted off again, and the guys bless Abraham, and the, the king is just like showering blessings on Abraham while he's got Sarah, his wife there, eventually it comes to light because he sees the two of them like 
cuddling there outside the palace then he's like what what's going on like why that's not the way you should treat your sister and it comes to light that it's not his sister's his wife and he's like what are you doing why did you send her in here you're bringing down all judgment on us get out of here go 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 and he basically chases them away the second time he does exactly the same thing a second time abraham had a son whose name was isaac open your bible to Genesis 26, verse 6. I, want you to, I don't know if all of these things are up here. I hope most of them are up here. 26, verse 6. Isaac. Isaac's on the move. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah because she's a beautiful woman. There's only seem to be beautiful women married to these oaks in this lineage. That's, that's part of the blessing, I think, uh, that I was talking about. But um, can you see here, Abraham does it twice. He has a son, Isaac. What does Isaac do? He's also a liar. It's exactly the same lie that you see a generation later. Isaac had a son. Isaac had a son. His name was Jacob. We're not going to read it now, but if you're making notes, write down Genesis chapter 27. Because Jacob, later in his life, goes and steals his brother's blessing, his birthright, from Esau, his brother. He goes in and pretends, he pretends to be his brother. So Jacob, it says Jacob is kind of like... um, more made for the kitchen kind of vibe is the way the, the Bible describes it. Like he's like a home bod. Like he's more into, like if you were at school, if you grew up, he did home ec instead of woodwork. I don't know how else to explain it. Like the older generation know what I'm talking about. You young oaks are like, what? Like he did home ec. He didn't do woodwork. Esau was out of hunting. He was a hairy oak hunter. And his dad actually preferred him because he liked meat and stuff like that. So Jacob pretends to be Esau and he weasels his way in to steal his brother's blessing and birthright. Lying and deception, lying and deception, lying and deception. Jacob, how many generations are we in now? This is the fourth generation. Jacob had how many sons? Twelve, excellent. Twelve tribes of Israel are Jacob's sons. One of them was a particularly annoying oak called Joseph. And he thought he was, well, his dad treated him like he was the best because he was the first son of his favorite wife. And he made him a special coat of many colors and blah, blah, blah. And his brothers were jealous of him and they tried to, first they were going to kill him, but then they decided against it and they sold him into slavery. And they went back and they told uh, Jacob what? You know, we found this coat, it's got blood on it, like we don't know what happened. Maybe wild beasts got the oak, we're so sorry kind of thing which is an outright lie. They knew exactly that sold him into slavery. And off he went to Egypt. Lying and deception, lying and deception, lying and deception, lying and deception. Generation after generation, generation. You see the same thing being perpetuated again and again and again. We could do a similar exercise uh, if we had time with, with David and Solomon and, and Rehoboam. Uh, in the area of um, sexual infidelity. We, we, I could take you through scriptures where, where David is 
we did a whole series on David. David is what? The man after God's own heart. He, he's a wonderful leader. He's God's anointed. He does love God. But there is this thing in David, this love of woman. And it gets him into all kinds of trouble with Bathsheba and then many other wives and concubines. And then what do you see in his son Solomon? You see the same thing on steroids. It's, it's like he, out, he outdoes his dad in concubine accumulation. It's, it's mental. It's like 700, I think, is the concubine number, which is a lot. I mean, it's a lot of ladies to have around any dude ever. This is not descriptive or prescriptive stuff. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. I mean, if you're new to the Bible, this is not how it should happen, okay? This is God sort of just not, didn't look the other way, but he, he was not pleased with this. This is not the pattern of relationships. So you see it in David. Then you see it in his son Solomon. Then you see it in his son Rehoboam. Now we're in three generations. You see Rehoboam giving himself to foreign women. Now he is as it were, prostituting himself with foreigners, and it ends up his heart, like, like his dad Solomon, his heart gets stolen away by women who don't worship Jesus, who don't worship the God of Israel. And in Rehoboam, you see that on steroids, and what does it lead to? It leads to a split in the kingdom. Israel and Judah, it ends up splitting the kingdom, and it ends up having the people led into exile. It's not a small thing, but you see this multi-generational, the same sin, Again and again and again. There are, I don't want to keep doing this, but there are more examples. I'm trying to make the point that the, the, the Bible shows us and explains that there are generational things that happen. You, you have a propensity to some kinds of sin that you have inherited through your family of origin that other people don't. You may be tempted in different ways that other people from other families aren't. And it can be traced back to where you come from. Let's read a passage, and then I'm going to explain briefly how some of this works as best I can. Exodus 20, from verse 3 to 6. This is God speaking. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them, and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love and keep my commands." Uh, different translations, depending on what Bible you're using, this is the CSB, depending on the translations, will translate that one significant phrase, bringing the consequences differently. Some will say uh, punishing the generation. Some will say, um, I can't remember all that. I should have made notes of it. But like it, it's slightly differently worded there. Some of you who have the translation punishing, like what is God doing here? Are you, are you an innocent victim of your great-granddad's sin? Is God going to come after you for his sin? No. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I don't think that's, I think the CSB guys have got this translation 
right, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquities upon the third and fourth generation. Consequences of iniquities. I don't think there's this kind of spiritual magic that you are going to pay the penalty for your great-grandfather or great-grandmother's sin. I don't believe God is like that. I don't believe he treats us like that. Um, and if you've heard that stuff, I don't believe it's true. I'd love to meet up with you and chat about it, but I don't believe that biblically it's justifiable. What I do think is justifiable is that, like I said, there is nature things. We have fallen natures. We, have, we are born with them, and you inherit fallen natures. You have, like I said, you have a propensity to sin in a way that's different to people from other families of origin. Your family history, have a look at it. Have a look. Test it out. Some of your families, I don't know, but is there divorce upon divorce upon divorce going back generations? Is there addiction? Is there adultery? Very often you see, when you look back up the family tree, the family of origin, you see the same sin struggles being repeated again and again. Part of it is because uh, there's, there's a nature that's inherited. Part of it is nurture. Part of it is the way you're nurtured, the, the way that you were raised in your family. We'll talk a bit about um, that in more detail in a second. But your, your genetic predisposition to sin gets passed down, but also the effects of sin flow down, the consequences of sin. We have sat with so many um, people and couples who are living out the consequences of generational sin, the consequences of adultery, adultery, adultery. They're terrified to get married because they don't want to repeat what they've seen again and again. Many people who don't want to get married because their parents got divorced and aunts and uncles and the grandparents, there's just a... a, a, a um, look back in the road of the family and there's just brokenness around the areas of marriage. We could keep going. There's, there's so many different areas. If you look, I, mean, I don't know all your families. You know your family. Um, and you can think about, hey, what are the effects of the sin that passes generation to generation to generation? Abuse, authoritarianism, permissiveness. It flows, guys. It does flow. I'm not making this stuff up. I want to point out something that's encouraging and wonderful here. What does God say? He says, for those who, who rebel against me and where there's wickedness and rebellion, sin will cascade three or four generations. And then it ends. For those who delight in me and in my ways, blessing and mercy cascades what? A thousand generations. A thousand Verses three or four. God is more interested in mercy and blessing cascading through the generations than he is in seeing generations. He almost restrains the consequences of sin and rebellion in the generations, and he just lets it rip in terms of blessing through a thousand generations. It's not like God's sitting in there and saying, I'm going to just drill this family. These oaks are always going to suffer. He puts the brakes on it after three or four. Even with those who are rebellious and sinful, such is the grace of God. But for those who fear him, he lavishes blessing down to the thousandth generation. That is what God is like. Before we move on to the next point, I just want to say that your, uh, I've mentioned this before, but it's a good exercise to sit down if you've never done this before and reflect on, on how, um, how your, your relationship with your parents 
has shaped your view of what God is like. If I sit with you for long enough and you, you tell me what your parents are like and what it was like growing up in your home or in your family, like I said earlier, either with or without your parents. Um, I think I've mentioned it many times. My dad died when I was six. Um, of an, he was an alcoholic. He died of an alcohol-induced heart attack. I found him the morning he passed away. No one else was, my mom wasn't there. I found him. That had a shaping influence on my life because my mom then got married multiple times after that, and there was multiple deaths. My stepdad died when I was 16. My mom then got divorced from another guy and eventually married a guy who then passed away a few years ago as well. That has a shaping effect on my life. It's stuff that I've had to journey with um, God through. But not having a dad as a young man, as a, as a young guy growing up, not having your father around, that shapes your view of God as a father. When I became a believer in Jesus, I had to figure out what, what is it when God calls himself father? What is a father? Because I didn't have one. What is a father? Like, it's like uh, there's a book by, I can't even remember who wrote the book, but the, t- the name of the book is To Own a Dragon. And it's a wonderful book. If you've never read it before, if you struggle with the issue of growing up without a dad, it's called To Own a Dragon. It's like, what is it like to own a dragon? I don't know. What's it like to have a dad? I don't know. That's the premise of the book. It's like to own a dragon. It's like it's the same thing. Like, what's it like to have a dad? Who knows? And God had to reparent me. I'm going to talk about that in a second. God had to show me what it's like. What does it mean to have God as a father? So it shaped, it fundamentally shaped my view of what God is like. What what has your family been like? What have your parents been like? How has that shaped and influenced? Were your parents overbearing and authoritarian? This is the way. It's my way or the highway. Right, wrong, black, white, in, out, obey, or you're done. I promise you, you project that onto your relationship with God. If your parents were overly permissive, we just love you, the sun shines out of you, do whatever you want. I promise you, you've projected that onto God. If your parents were absent, you have things. We could keep going. I don't know what it's like for everyone. And some of what I'm saying today, I'm sure is hitting a nerve with some of you just talking about your parents. Some of those wounds are not very, not very um, you know, they're near the surface. Let me say that. For others, you've buried them. You've done such an excellent job of avoiding it and sticking your head in the sand that you need more help to sit with the Lord, and he needs to excavate because you've thought this is not going to actually affect me that much. Guys, this is the mercy of God. The mercy of God is that in the safety of the gospel and because your father loves you, you can excavate your heart all the way down, and all of the wounds that you've received intentionally and unintentionally from your parents. I don't want to attribute any blame to your parents that they tried to hurt you or tried to misshape you or whatever else. Maybe they were doing their best, but you've picked up stuff. You have scar tissue that I think in God's kindness He wants many of us to work through. So that's the first thing is recognize both blessing and sin in your family. The second is recognize that you've been birthed into a new family. This is for believers in Jesus. Recognize you've been birthed into a new family. Um, Read with me Romans 8. One of the best passages in the Bible, Romans 8, 14 to 17. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, which is another translation, like daddy. It's a very intimate term for God. Daddy, father. 
the Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. You need to realize that if you're a follower in Jesus, you have been birthed into, through the new birth in Jesus, you've been birthed into a new family, the family of God. It's a different family to your family of origin. And have a look around the room. This is part of the family of God that you've been birthed into. And you have been adopted. God, God has taken us and adopted us into, we were naturally born into a relationship with God. We were adopted in. And all of the blessings have come to us through our adoption. And now, in this new family, you have what? You have a new father. You have a new father. I don't have a dad. I wish I had a dad. But I have a father. I have my true father. I have a brother. I have a brother, actual brother. But I have a brother in Jesus. That's what the Bible says. I have a brother in Jesus. And I have brothers. I have brothers in Jesus. And I have sisters in Jesus. And I've got other dads. Some of the old buddies here, we don't have many, uh, many old buddies in our church, so we're a bit light on the dads. I'm not going to point in any directions. Uh, Brian Carter's staring me down here, so I'm just going to look away. We don't have many old buddies. We don't have many, um, many older ladies. We have some. We need to pray for more. When you come into the family of God, God gives you a whole new family. He gives you moms and dads in the church. He gives you brothers and sisters. He gives you sons and daughters. Some of you long for sons and daughters. Your sons and daughters have either left you or walked away from the faith. God's put you in a church where there's tons of young people that you can father and mother. Some of the most effective people in God's church are the older people. Because they know. They know how faithful God is. That's why I don't believe in retirement. There's no such thing as retirement. There's a refocusing of saying, hey, God, you're calling us to a second go. Our kids, we've done an okay job. Maybe they turned out fine. Maybe they didn't. But you bring us into the family of God where there's tons of sons and daughters that we can parent. Because here's the thing. You need to be reparented in the family of God. Some of you have had wonderful um, godly parents. I know some of your parents. They're wonderful godly examples, and you can thank God for them. But for many people, you need to be reparented in the church. You need to be shown what it's like to be loved by a mom or a dad and a brother and a sister in a healthy gospel way. I'm not saying, and here what I'm not saying, that you need to cut ties with your family. Like at the end of this, we're all going to have a whole ceremony where we're like, see ya. You know, families of origin, we're done. We're a family. <laughs> You know, and you get a t-shirt and we're all going to drink something together at the end. And then it's all going to be all over the floor, you know. Like, this is how cults are started when you start this kind of preaching. You know, we're a family. Don't let anyone leave. You know, it's not, that's not what I'm saying. Like, delight and, and still stay connected to your family of origin. But eyes wide open that the, the family of God is your ultimate family. It is because it's the only family that's going to endure past your death. These are your brothers and sisters for eternity. For eternity. It's a permanent family that you've been brought into. That's why it's so important for us to be a healthy family, an emotionally healthy family, as well as a spiritually healthy family. 
That's the second thing. Recognize you've been birthed into a new family. The last thing is that you learn how to put off and put on. You learn how to put off and put on. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 4, what Paul says to the church in Ephesians. Ephesians 4 verse 20 to 24. He's talking about stuff that they, the Ephesians used to be involved in and how they used to live. And he says from verse 20, he says, But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught um, by him as the truth is in Jesus, to, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. This is the, this is the, this is the, the walking out. This is the path of breaking free from your past. And I'm going to talk about it in a second, that God, God both breaks chains and liberates in an instant, but he also asks you to walk a road where day by day you are living out the freedom that Jesus has won for you. And you put off, that's what Paul says, you put off the old ways. You don't live like your family of origin with the deceitful things and the deceptive things and the corrupted things and the sin things that you may have inherited. You don't walk in those ways. You walk in new ways. You get reparented and you walk in the ways of Jesus. Pete Scazzaro says that Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. It's a great phrase. Because you're like some people are just like, I'm a Christian. It's all lovely. I'm a new creation in Christ. Yeah, Jesus lives in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. Unless you learn to put off and put on, you so quickly just live shackled and even sometimes unconsciously in the ways, the sinful ways that you've inherited from your family of origin. We need to, this is the process of discipleship. We need to learn to live and walk in new ways. Your family of origin had their own list of commands. And Jesus has a different list of commands. Your family of origin had uh, ways of communicating things, spoken and unspoken, that made you prioritize things. I'll mention a couple of them. Um, how, how did your family think about money and speak about money? W was that the thing? If you get enough money, worth study in school so you can get a, um, you can go to varsity, get a good job, make money, be secure, because money is the thing. It gives you security. It gives you access. Money, money, money. That's the thing. That's our family is about money. That's the command. And you obey the command. You may want to go do this, but you have to follow the family's commands. Other families, the command is we don't speak about awkward things. We don't go there. You know, the stuff's happening, but we don't go there. Not our family. You see all those other families that throw plates and stuff? Not us. No, no, no. We keep it together. We keep it together. We present to the whole world outside that we've got it together. And so you go through your whole life presenting and projecting that you have it together when downstairs there. <laughs> it's all coming apart. The wheels are off. The the drive shaft is stripping, the, everything is gone, it's oil leak, it's a mess. I don't know enough about cars, you can tell perhaps that uh, uh, I sort of lost my way a little bit around when the car started falling apart there. But down inside it's a mess, but man, you've got to keep it together for everyone else. What did your family think of other cultures? In South Africa, that's a big deal. 
oh, oh, those people. Either spoken or unspoken. If you're a white person and you're here, most of you are white. If you grew up in South Africa, there was a high likelihood, there was a high likelihood that your parents were a bit back-footed in having anyone who was not white in your home as a friend around a table to eat as an equal and enjoying those relationships. There's a high likelihood you never experienced that and saw that as a kid growing up. What is the unspoken command there? Our culture, we stick together. Your best friends will come from this culture. Those people in South Africa, I'm just going to call a spade a spade, they exist to serve our needs. We're at the top of the totem pole and they help us get to where we're going. That is an unspoken, sometimes a spoken command that's from the pit of hell, by the way. And it needs to be unlearned. I could keep going on this, but every family has their commands that you have adhered to, you have bowed down to, and part of being reparented and putting off and putting on is submitting your life to the commands of Jesus because his commands take priority over the family of origin's commands. And he commands you to a whole new way of living. But the process is one foot in front of another, head in the word, heart open to Jesus. Say, God, how do you want me to live differently? How do you want me to be changed? I grew up like this. It's just so much. So, some of it you're oblivious to. You need, you need help. You need a community around you. That's what discipleship is all about. Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. No longer to be shackled to a yoke of slavery. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. He won your freedom on the cross. He doesn't want you running back and shackling yourself under your family of origins, burdens, and commands so that you live in that old way of life instead of the new way of life that Jesus has for you. How do you move forward as we close? The first thing is to recognize um, that God doesn't waste anything. Some of you are sitting here, I understand, really maybe this morning because you're just thinking about your family and you're like, Phew. Doug, if only you knew. I want to remind you that God doesn't waste anything. God doesn't play games and God doesn't waste anything. Whatever you have been through didn't take God by surprise. He's not looking at you thinking, wow, I'm so glad you told me that. I wasn't around, didn't know. He, 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 he's seen every single minute of your life. Every minute. Every single minute. The minutes you loved, the minutes you hated, the ones you're deeply ashamed of, he's seen them all. He knows it. And he doesn't waste any of it. The story of Joseph is there in one way to remind us that as his brothers sell him into slavery and he, God is with him. It says God is with him, God is with him, God is with him. God raises Joseph up into the place of prominence in Egypt. And his brothers come groveling and begging for food there. And he reveals himself to them and they're terrified. He says, look, you meant this for evil. You meant this for evil. You sold me into slavery. But God meant this for good. For the saving of many lives. You, you did mean this for evil. I'm not going to whitewash what may have happened in your life. Your parents, your family of origin, there is sin, there's brokenness, guys. It may have been meant for evil or it may have been unintentionally, but it's evil and sin and brokenness that's come down. But God is at work in those things. His hands went tied behind his back and he doesn't waste anything. 
He doesn't waste anything. Often, often the ways in which you have experienced brokenness, if you submit that God uses you to become a healer for others. Are you tracking with me? The areas in which you've experienced the greatest brokenness, if you submit that God will allow you to be a healer in the same area for others, because you understand, you get it, you can sympathize. The comfort you have received is the comfort you can give to others. You, you know. You know what it's like to lose a loved one. You know what it's like to suffer abuse. You know what it's like to grow up with an alcoholic dad. You know what it's like to have divorced parents. You know, you know, you know. But, but, Henry Nouwen has got a term called the wounded healer. The wounded healer, it's a reference to Jesus, but it's a reference to us. It's like how you become a healer, but by acknowledging the woundedness and allowing God to heal first. You don't go rush out and say, okay, well, this happened in my life. I'm, a, I'm available to meet with anyone and stuff, but you haven't actually worked through your stuff. There's been no healing that's come to bear on your own life. You still carry all the scars from your family of origin. You actually haven't made any progress. We will send out some homework, if you want, through the community groups, and we'll make it available. Uh, Pete Scazzero has got some great stuff on, on how you can draw. He's got a great exercise where you draw out your family history your experience of your family history, to plot things that you can then, it's a very helpful exercise uh, to bring to God, because and like this morning and I know I've said a lot, it's been a lot, but sometimes that process can be so helpful to say, okay, God, what are the things? What are the areas? Where, where are some things? And just allow the Holy Spirit to reveal and speak those things to you. Some of you, you live with it right in front of your face, like this morning, it's right there, and others, you, you need to do more exercises to uncover like the ways in which you've been shaped by your past, and we're happy to help provide that stuff. Um, but as we, come, as we come to communion this morning, uh, I want us to be praying as we come to communion. Um, I mentioned two things, that God, God um, breaks chains. God breaks chains, God delivers. You don't deliver yourself, okay? Exodus is there as a story God liberating his people from the slavery of Egypt, God is the one liberating. The people couldn't get themselves out. They needed God to do it. It's there as an example to us that God needs to liberate you from the power, the power of the past that you have inherited and has affected you. And God does that in an instant, and then he does it as you walk it out on a day-to-day -day basis. Are you with me? He does it in an instant, and he does it day-to-day -day as you walk it out. And for, I don't know where you are this morning, I've been praying for us this week. Yeah. I, I want to provide an opportunity as we come to communion for God to liberate and for God to help some of you break free from your past. It's the number one thing holding you back. It's the number one thing holding you back from making progress, from, from stepping towards emotional maturity. This is the thing. The hold of the sinful effects of your family of origin have such a power over you. And I want to encourage you this morning that they are not more powerful than the power of Jesus to set you free from those things. And so cry out to him. Cry, cry out to him. Say, Lord, you, you know what a mess I am. You know all these things, whatever your family. Cry out to him for freedom this morning.